The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today we'll be reading from Judges chapter 16, and we're going to start at verses 1 through 5. And if you're reading in the Black Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 201. Please stand with me as I read God's word. Judges 16, chapter 1. Verse 1, sorry. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait until the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he rose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him and humble him and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Now please skip down to verse 15. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart, and he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Now please skip to verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Well, here we are. We're in the last episode that we're going to see in the life of Samson. Um, And if you are keeping track of where we're at in the book of Judges, this is really our last look that we're going to get to see at one um, of of the Judges. We're going to roll 
over the next two weeks and divide up the last couple of chapters, but those chapters will not focus on a judge per se, but on the downward spiral of of God's people, that continued downward spiral. But this morning we have before us probably one of the most famous episodes, I would dare say, concerning a judge, and that's the episode of Samson and this woman he ran after, a woman named Delilah. Well, our sermon this morning, if you're into writing down titles, is going to be called this, The Death of a Savior. The Death of a Savior. And really, the main idea that the author is going to show us is this, that in Samson, we have a Savior who dies so that others might be delivered. In Samson, we have a Savior who dies so that others might be delivered. So we need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand the scriptures before us. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive into the text before us this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you that when we pray according to your will, you not only hear our prayers, but you delight to answer them. And so, Jesus, I'm just thinking along the lines of your conversation with the two disciples that you had on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, where you clearly said to them, that all the scriptures, prophets, teachings, psalms, the hymns, everything finds its culmination in you. And then you, Lord Jesus, moved in such a way in the explanation of the scriptures that the response of these two disciples was to say to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us as he exposed the central purpose of the scriptures, namely himself? And so, Jesus, I'm asking this morning that the experience of seeing Christ in all the scriptures, their hearts burning within them, their eyes opened to see Jesus, their minds opened to understand the scriptures would be our experience today. Not because I am a teacher of any great skill, but because you are a great God who delights to open our eyes to see Jesus, who delights to open our minds to understand the scriptures so that we would absolutely see our absolute need for Jesus. And so thus I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Immerse us, drench this time with you doing among my friends here what I'm incapable of doing. And that is magnifying Jesus Christ to be seen as the great, good, big, better God that he is. It's in your name I pray these things, King Jesus. Amen. Well, we have Judges chapter 16 before us this morning, and as we work through the text, we're just going to chop this last chapter up into into three segments. And really, these three segments are going to become basically the three kind of pegs, the three hooks that we're going to hang our thoughts on as we move through the text. And really, the first hook that we're going to find is in verses 1 through 3, 
where we see this truth, the danger of success. The danger of success. Verses 1 through 3, Judges chapter 16. So if you think about the opening of Judges chapter 16, really what we have is the climax of Samson's story. He is a man with a miraculous birth. We saw that two weeks ago. And he is a man who has been blessed with a very gracious gift. We saw that last week in Judges 14 and 15. But as we have seen throughout this whole episode of Samson's life, that Samson is a man who is also deeply flawed, and he is a man who is actually more weak than he knows. All of Samson's turmoil from last week really has stemmed from Samson's weaknesses for women that he was not supposed to have. From his encounter with that young lion to the lost bet that he had to pay up on with his Philistine companions that were given to him, from the murder of his wife by the Philistines to his victory on Jawbone Hill, if you step back and look at it, really all of it followed and flowed from his singular decision to go to the Philistine town of Timnah where he saw this Philistine woman who was, if you remember, right in his own eyes. Now, after all this turmoil, you would think Samson would step back and go, you know what, series of unfortunate events flowing directly from my pursuit of not God's will, not God's law, not God's commands for my life. You know what, lesson learned, change of life. Well, you find out that is not the case with Samson. Apparently, he has learned nothing from all this turmoil in his life. For when we look at Judges chapter 16, verse 1, we see once again Samson's weakness for women leading him to sin against Yahweh as he went to Gaza, saw another woman, more specifically a prostitute, and he goes into her. And then in verse 2, once again, he's enticed into an extremely dangerous situation as the Gazites surrounded the place where he was and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. And then in verse 3, once again, he uses God-given strength to deliver himself instead of using this gift, this blessing, this gracious kindness from God, his strength, to deliver the people of God. Remember, that is the point and the purpose of his strength. He is a savior. He's a deliverer. He was never meant to use God's good gift as a means for self-serving. He was meant to use God's gift as a means for self-giving. So he could lay down his life for the good of those whom he was meant to save. But again, he doesn't do that. Verse 3, he uses his God-given strength to deliver himself instead of God's people as he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, pulled them up, bar and all, says the author, puts them on his shoulders and carries them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron, which is actually some 40 miles away. And so it's this great display of strength that really stands out as a form of self-serving love. He just used it to save himself. So from the moment we first meet Samson the adult in chapter 14 up until now, Judges chapter 16, verse 3, Samson 
has had one success after another. You could use that language and lay it on top of Samson. If you've seen him, and if you just go back from last week till now, every episode of Samson we've seen has actually been a success, if you want to use that language. Lion comes and tries to get him, successfully kills the lion, successfully takes the 30 clothes, successfully sets the 30, 300 foxes and puts their tails on fire, successfully goes to Jabba. It's success after success. After the Gaza Gate incident, that is a form of success if you want to use that language. So Samson is having one success after another, but notice how Samson seems to have processed all of this success. Even though each victory, the Young Lion victory, the 30 Philistines victory, the Jawbone Hill victory, the Gaza Gate victory, even though each victory has come as the result of the Lord God giving him the strength in order to be successful, we find that with each success, Samson seems to grow confident in his own invulnerability. So it's like this. God gives a gift, he uses the gift in a wrong way, but God in his grace, God in his kindness brings the success. And so Samson seems to keep drawing the conclusion over and over again, it doesn't matter what I do, it doesn't matter if I live obedient to God, it doesn't matter how I deploy the blessing of God's gift, because no matter what I do, God's gift will always be there, it will never go away, and I can use his gift however I want to. It's sort of inculcating this idea of invulnerability. I'm invincible. I can do no wrong, and this gift of God's success, this gift of strength, will never disappear. It'll never go away. And it's because of this we see in Samson, we can realize this reality of why success can be spiritually dangerous to us. Success can be spiritually dangerous. You see, any success you and I might find is the result of God's kindness. It's the result of God's grace. But if we're not careful, we can view our successes as something we deserve instead of what they are, God's gracious gift. We can show up at work. We can go across the street to the neighbor. We can serve a neighbor. We can love family members. We can do all sorts of things and find some measure of success, however we want to define that. And all of us know it's not a far leap to get to the place where we begin to assume, I deserve success because... Fill in the blank. I have done the groundwork. I'm very smart. I know what I'm talking about. I've done the training. I've got the college degree. I know me. I know what I've done. I know me. I know what I've done. It's this very self-centered, deserving mentality, this entitled mentality that draws the conclusion, well, of course, success is coming my way because look at how great I am. And we fail to see that success of any kind, I dare say, comes as the result of God's kindness. It comes as the result of God's grace. And again, if we're not careful, we can view our successes in life as something we deserve instead of seeing them as what they are, God's gracious gift. You see, this is what Samson, I think, is failing to recognize at this stage in his life. Judges chapter 16. The more God blessed him, 
giving him strength to fight his enemies, the more he engages in irresponsible sinful behavior. And the more he assumes from God's blessings, I cannot be defeated, so I can live however I want to live. But it's this very mindset which sets us up to see our next peg, our next truth of the downfall of Samson. The downfall of Samson. This is point number two, verses four through 22. The author is going to unpack for us where does this mindset ultimately lead? Where does this mindset ultimately lead when we say to ourselves, of course God's blessings will always be there, even if I'm doing whatever I want, want to do. It leads to a downfall. And that's what verses 4 through 22 are. They are an unpacking of the downfall of Samson. And what is his downfall? I would argue that ultimately his downfall is the downfall of his self-sufficient strength. Remember, his strength is actually a gift from God. A kind and gracious gift from God. But he is absorbing that gift and beginning to think, you know what, I'm actually strong in and of myself. And so his downfall now is because he's resting on the foundation, not of my strength is God-reliant, my strength is self-reliant. It's not me being, I'm not self-sufficient and I need God. It's me going, I am self-sufficient, of course I'm going to be able to do whatever I want to do. That is sort of the epicenter of the source of Samson's downfall. Remember, when we studied Gideon, what we saw was the strength of weakness. God intentionally weakens Gideon to prove he is strong in weakness. But with Samson, what we're going to see now with the remainder of the chapter is actually the reverse. What we are going to see is the weakness of strength. The weakness of self-sufficient strength. Or to put it another way, we're going to see the truth of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. You want to write that down, and you can go and look that up here a little bit later if you want something to do this afternoon. But in Samson's life, we see the truth of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, on full display in the actions of Samson. Namely, says the wise man, the truth that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Pride comes before destruction, says the sage in Proverbs 16, verse 18. And he continues, an arrogant spirit comes before a fall. You see, it's this truth, this verse, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, which explains why Samson is about to have a mighty, mighty downfall. It explains why he repeatedly flirts with danger instead of fleeing from danger. It explains why he still continues with Delilah after three betrayals. Have you ever just thought about this? Like, we're going to see this in a couple of minutes. Like, she just outright says, you know what? I'm actually sort of here to get you to be subdued, and I don't want you to be victorious. And he entertains this betrayal, and it's not successful. And you'd think the dude would be like, I'm out of here, man. Like, you're insane, and you're going to be my downfall. But he doesn't do that. He sticks around, and he flirts with danger four times. Why? Because pride 
comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit comes before a fall. It explains why he continues with the Delilah after three betrayals. It, contain, it explains even further why he actually foolishly reveals the true source of his strength. He's eventually going to come to the place where he's like, man, it doesn't matter anymore if I keep secrets from me. He actually reveals the secret of his strength. It all flows from a prideful, arrogant spirit. The spirit of thought that we can see in Samson, the spirit of thought that we can see in ourselves, the spirit of thought that we've seen in others that says this, I can do these things and I will not get caught. Have you ever found yourself on the backside of sin because you thought that? I can flirt around with the sin right here. I'm not going to be the one who gets caught. Caught. That's a prideful, arrogant spirit that says I can bring the coals of sin close to my chest, but I will be the one who will not get burned. This prideful, arrogant spirit, it's this conscience that soothes and tells itself, you know what, maybe those fools out there, but not me. I'm not going to be the one who's going to burn. It's the mindset that wakes up in the morning and operates throughout the day saying, you know what, others may fail, and I know others will fail because they are weak fools, but I won't fail because I am intelligent, I am strong. But as we see before us in Samson, and as we so often see around us, as we so often see when we look in the mirror, this mindset, this way of thinking, this is the attitude of pride that leads us to think we can play with the firebrands of sin and somehow I ain't going to be the one who's going to get burned on this one. So notice how the story unfolds. It unfolds in one giant bloom of pride. And notice that in pride, Samson flirts with danger. In pride, Samson flirts with danger. We see that in verses 4 and 5. Once again, he finds himself in love with a woman he's not supposed to have, a woman named Delilah. The lords of the Philistines know that Samson is in love with Delilah, so they approach her and promise her money if she can, notice, seduce him and see where his great strength lies. How about that for a foundation of a relationship? Seduction and lies. But that's what we have. So far, this pattern of Philistinian infatuation has only yielded trouble. But Samson doesn't care, and once again, he is willing, very willing, to risk the danger. But then notice as we go on to verses 6 through 16, we also see another display of pride. In pride, Samson continues with Delilah despite her betrayal. Delilah's love for Samson was merely a game to be played for her gain. Do you see her motivation there? The lords of the Philistines say, what do you want? Give me the money and I will seduce him and I will betray him. For her, it's a get-rich-quick scheme. All that mattered to her was Philistinian money. So she immediately gets to work on seducing her lover. Her first question is ridiculously obvious in verse 6. As she asks him, point blank, how can I bind you so that someone can subdue you? 
It's like, all right, I guess that's the game we're going to play. I mean, there's no subtlety here. We're not trying to beat around the bush. She wants to get to the point. People are offering me money to bind you and seduce you, so how can that happen? Now, you'd think Samson would be a little bit suspicious from the start, but remember, pride and an arrogant spirit marks Samson's heart. Brothers and sisters, we know what it is to be betrayed and seduced because in pride and arrogance, we cannot see the obvious in front of us. And Samson is there. Who knows what he's thinking? Perhaps it's this. I know what she's doing, but again, in pride and arrogance, I ain't going to be the one who'll get caught. Remember, I tore up a young lion and I killed 30 Philistines. I'm the captain and the victor of Jawbone Hill. It ain't going to be me that's going to go down by this woman named Delilah. I know the game she's playing, but I don't care. In pride, he continues with Delilah despite her betrayal. So I can only imagine Samson plays her dangerous game of betrayal, assuming that if he gets caught in her trap, somehow God's blessing of strength is just going to be there to bail him out. After all, that is the precedent that has been set. So the game begins in verse 7. Samson lied to her, answering, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man, he says. So she bound Samson with bowstrings, verse 8, called the men lying in ambush only to watch Samson snap the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. In other words, he escapes without any effort whatsoever. Scenario plays itself out almost verbatim two more times. If you look at verse 10, Delilah decried her dislike of Samson's mockery and for a second time asked for the secret of his strength. Samson lied again and escaped being bound with new ropes, verses 11 and 12. Then again in verse 13, Delilah asked for the secret of Samson's success, and again she told him that he had mocked her and told her lies, and again Samson speaks deceitfully. Only this time he tiptoes the danger line by actually coming close to the secret of his strength, his hair. This time it's not bind me with fresh ropes or bind me with bowstrings. He actually sort of like steps into the world that orbits around the truth. It has something to do with his hair, as we're going to read here in a couple of minutes. He doesn't tell her the entire truth, just a little bit of truth mixed with deceit and lies. But for Delilah, three strikes does not mean you are out. So she played the, if you really love me, you will tell me your secret game. You see that there in verse, verse 15, right? And she said to him, how can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? Any of us ever been guilty of trying to manipulate the one we love by playing the, if you love me, you will do this for me game? Delilah's pulling that card on Samson right now. And she pressed him hard. I thought verse 16 was so very interesting. See, the definition of love for Samson and Delilah is not self-giving, it's self-serving. You notice Delilah's definition of love? It's not, I'm here to serve you, it's I'm here to get something out of you. 
And I dare say it's the same for Samson. Samson's definition of love is, I'm here not to serve you. I'm here to get something out of you. For her, self-serving looks like, I need information so I can get some cash. For Samson, it's self-serving in the form of sex. He just wants a lover. Someone to meet his sensual needs and his sensual desires. He doesn't really love her. He is using her, just as she is using him. But in her pursuit of self-serving, quote, love, I thought verse 16 was so interesting. And she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged Samson, and this was the phrase, until his soul was vexed to death. Woo! Man, you know what? Uh, I can say in all honesty, I have never been anywhere close to that in my life my marriage, but I can only imagine what it's like to be on the receiving end of your spouse pressing and nagging and nagging and pressing and pressing and nagging and nagging and pressing and pressing and nagging and nagging and pressing to the point where you are vexed to death. Translation, Samson at this stage of the game found death to be better relief than the pressing of Delilah. Not the point of the text, but I think a principle that can be found in Scripture is this. If your marriages are based upon self-serving, treating the other spouse as a tool, an instrument to serve you, you will wind up in this place. Which is why we need Jesus in the midst of our marriages. And we need Jesus not in the midst of our marriage. We need Jesus as the center of our marriages. Because Jesus shows us what it looks like not to be self-serving, but to be self-giving. And then to notice a third instance of pride, verses 17 through 22. In pride, Samson foolishly reveals the source of his strength. In pride, he foolishly reveals the source of his strength. For he found, he told Delilah, listen, when you're vexed to death, you're going to come to the place where like, what can I do to make this stop? Can you make it stop? And so he's like, listen, I'm going to give her what she wants. So it'll stop. And in pride, he foolishly reveals the source of his strength. He told her, if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me. Now, I say that Samson did this in pride, revealed the source of his strength because of what we read actually down in verse 20. Delilah, now knowing the truth, sent for her money, verse 18. The sleeping Samson is shaved and his strength left him, verse 19. Now think about this. Samson knows that he has told Delilah the truth. And he must have known as he awoke from his sleep that his hair was gone. Yet, in pride, he still thinks as he awakes from his sleep, verse 20, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But Samson did not know that the Lord God had left him, verse 20. And so the Philistine sees him, gouge out his eyes, bring him down to Gaza, bind him with bronze shackles, and the strong man is subdued. Friends, my argument, because of verse 20, 
is that this, what we see in Samson, this is pride on Samson's part. Pride that comes before his fall, proving that pride can deceive us into making insane false assumptions. Pride can deceive us into making insane false assumptions. You see, from what we can tell in the text as it's written before us, is that Samson's life has been consumed with doing what was right in his own eyes. And along the way, his God-given strength has never left him. And so it appears Samson foolishly assumes that his strength would never leave him no matter what he did. In his mind, he can do whatever he wants. In his mind, he can relate to Yahweh however he wants. Why? Because God will always be there to bail him out no matter what. Now, as a side thought, we need to understand that when we read about how the Lord God left Samson, that's the last sentence there in verse 20, When we read about how the Lord God left Samson, we need to understand this. Samson was not getting ripped off by Yahweh. He's not being mistreated in this moment. You see, we might read this and go, man, Samson was tricked by God. I mean, his strength was always available to him. Samson was just simply in this moment making a decision based upon that precedent in life. Got himself in the hot water with the lion. God's strength was there. Got himself in the hot water with the 30 Amalekite companions. God's strength was there. Got himself in the hot water as a result of the foxes and the fire and the jawbone hill thing. And God's strength was always there. Got himself in the hot water with the Gaza Gate incident. And God's strength was always there. I mean, put yourself in Samson's shoes. If you're getting yourself in this situation, where are you going to assume based upon precedent? God's strength, God's gift will be there. So when Samson needed his God-given strength the most, though... We might be tempted to think, listen, God callously withdrew and Samson got hammered. How cruel we might be well. How cruel of God. But what we must remember is that Samson's strength was a gift of God's grace. It's a gift of God's grace. The success of his strength was the result of God's kindness to him. Samson had done nothing to deserve the gift. If anything, what Samson deserved was just judgment from Yahweh the judge a long time ago for repeatedly doing what was right in his own eyes. You see, in leaving Samson, listen, in leaving Samson, Yahweh was not being cruel. In leaving Samson, Yahweh was not failing in his faithfulness. He was actually being quite gracious by taking away the one thing which was keeping Samson from God. And that was actually the gift of his strength. Do you see what Yahweh is doing here? Yahweh knows that his good and gracious gift has now been distorted and twisted by his deliverer in such a way where his deliverer is actually abusing and using and worshiping the gift and not the giver. 
And God loves sinners too much to step back and go, you know what? Just I'm sorry, I don't know what to do. He will strip away good gifts at times in our life if he knows we are worshiping the gift and not the giver so that our eyes will be able to see our need for him. In Yahweh's, <laughs> listen, Yahweh is being gracious by taking away this one thing, which is keeping Samson from God, the gift of his strength. And what you have to wrestle with in your mind, and what you have to mark down in your heart, and what you will need God to help you to believe is that in this moment, in doing this, withdrawing this gift of strength, Yahweh, the Lord God, is not being cruel. Yahweh is being loving. He's being loving. You see, Samson had turned, again, God's gift into an excuse to leave God and love himself. Haven't we said that a couple times this morning? At this stage in the game, God's good gift is now an excuse for Samson to love self and leave God behind. But in Yahweh's redemptive pursuit of sinners, he will withdraw his good gifts from us if those good gifts are keeping us from seeing our need for him. And if Samson needs anything right now, he absolutely needs to see his absolute need for Yahweh. So, verse 20, the most grace-infused words that permeate grace, drip grace, spray grace, ooze grace are the last words of verse 20. Yahweh left him. That is grace. That is grace. Yahweh the Lord left him because in leaving him, it's going to awaken Samson to the pride of his foolish assumption, which will posture his heart and posture his mind to actually call out to the Lord God once more. Samson needs to be released in a sense to go down to the very bottom of the barrel so that when he, like Luke 15... The prodigal son is eating pig slop, comes to his senses, says Jesus in the parable, and says, I need Yahweh. That's what Samson needs right now, and God is giving it to him by withdrawing, graciously withdrawing that gift. So Samson's eyes go like this. Wow, I need God bad right now. I need him right now. And if the truth be told, the reason I think this episode, Judges 16, resonates so deeply is because hidden with all of us is the ability to do the same as Samson. If you haven't figured it out yet, Samson can be like a mirror. Because when we look into Samson, we see ourselves. When we do what we want to do contrary to the Lord God, and we happen to not get caught for a while. Or perhaps when we sin in a particular moment, and for whatever reason in that particular moment we get away with our sin, like Samson, we can begin to think, well, those thoughts, those words, those actions that I just committed, those must not be that bad. 
we might be tempted to think, well, God must not be that upset with my actions, thoughts, or words. And so what we do is we pull a Samson. In pride, we foolishly assume that we can do whatever we want and somehow escape sin's destruction. I'm telling you, I think that's what Samson's doing right now in this moment. He is up to this point in time and said this, in pride, he has foolishly assumed that he can do whatever he wants and somehow he's going to escape sin's destruction. And like him, you and I can do the exact same thing, which is, oddly enough, why we need Jesus so badly. It's why we need Jesus so badly, folks. Because we are prone to pull a Samson, we desperately need Jesus to reveal those areas of our lives where we have pridefully mistaken God's kindness as his approval of our sinful choices. Again, is that not what Samson is doing? He's pridefully mistaking God's gracious kindness shown, at least in his life, in the giving of his strength as, listen, God is good with my life. And how often do you and I do the exact same thing where we foolishly mistake, pridefully mistake God's long-suffering, patient kindness as his approval of our sinful choices and our sinful desires and our sinful words, our sinful thoughts and our sinful actions? Remember, Romans chapter 2, God's Kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness is not meant to make us think we're fooling God and getting away with our sin in the midst of it. You see, this is why sinners like you and this is why sinners like me need a Savior. We need a Savior. And not just any Savior, but a Savior who can truly and eternally save us from the penalty of our sin. Truly and eternally save us from the wrath of God to come. To truly and eternally save us from the hell that you and I deserve for our sin. A Savior who can put sin to death so that we might live and it's as we turn to, arguably, the most important moment in Samson's life, Samson's death, that we are going to get a shadow of God's salvation plan as we witness the third hook, the third point, the death of a Savior. The death of a Savior. Look at verses 23 through 31. Samson has been reduced to a life of captivity, and exists as the source of entertainment for his enemies. He's been reduced to being basically a court jester. But the Lord was not through with Samson yet. Praise be to God. You ever been in the place where you're like, oh no, I think I might have just hosed myself on that little decision right there. Surely I am beyond ever being useful for God because of that thought, because of that action, because of those words. Now, Samson gives us a lot of hope, but if he gives us at least one hope, it is this. We can royally screw up and still not be unusable by God. 
But the Lord was not through with Samson yet, the prideful, arrogant man that he was, the sex-driven, sensual man that he was. For we read down there at the end of verse 22, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Samson was still the deliverer of Israel, whom the Lord had appointed for this time. So after much drinking, we read that the people, the Philistines, the lords, all the people of this party, they call for Samson to entertain them at their great celebration. They bring Samson out of prison and have him stand before the pillars. And then we read, look down there starting in verse 28. Samson called to the Lord and said, I think, Samson, if you want to do extra reading for yourself, go home and read Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. My argument is Judges 16 is the Old Testament equivalent to the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15 and Judges 16 have a lot in common. Because my argument is this is sort of the son who is off, desolate, living, came to his senses. He's come to his senses now. Samson called to the Lord because he knows where and whom his salvation and his strength is going to come. He prays this, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then if you notice a couple verses down with one final prayer, he says this, let me die with the Philistines. And then notice that upon praying this prayer, Samson the Savior gives his life in death so that others might be delivered. He grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other, and then he bowed with all his strength where we know that strength comes from. And the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it, so that the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. His death is delivered. His death has brought deliverance. You see, the death of Samson the Savior, that's what we have here in these last couple of verses. And you see, the death of Samson not only sets the paradigm for what God's Savior should do, but it also sets us up for a greater Savior to come who would also give his life and death so that others might be delivered. And when we jump into the New Testament, we discover that when the fullness of time had come, Galatians chapter 4, God sent forth his Son, this greater Savior, to redeem those who are under the law. You see, in so many ways, Samson's death and deliverance stand out as a shadowy picture of Jesus' death and deliverance. Think about this. Both Samson and Jesus were betrayed by someone close to them. Samson betrayed by Delilah, Jesus betrayed by Judas. Both were handed over to Gentile oppressors, Samson to the Philistines, Jesus to the Romans. Both were tortured and publicly mocked. 
Both were asked to perform Samson at the Philistines party. And in Luke 23, I believe it is, Jesus is asked to perform at Herod's little party. Both died with arms outstretched, Jesus on the cross, Samson bowing down with his hands on the two pillars, arms outstretched. Both appeared completely struck down by their enemies. When you come into the end of Judges chapter 16, it looks like Dagon the false god and Dagon's followers have Samson's number. He appeared completely struck down by his enemies, yet in his death, he crushes them. Jesus, upon the cross, weak, doesn't look strong. What good comes from Nazareth? That's the kind of Savior he is. Don't want anything to do with him. Everyone's tucking tail and running because Jesus is not pinned to a tree looking like he's strong and about to come down and save sinners. It's looking like he was full of full of lies and half-truths, weak, embarrassing. He looks impotent, powerless. But yet through his death, what does he do? He crushes to death, death. He crushes to death Satan, sin, and hell. But notice that there is one absolute crucial difference between Samson and Jesus that makes all the difference in the world. When you look down at Judges chapter 16, verse 31, we read this. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. You see, Samson lived, Samson died, and Samson was buried in a tomb. And his death, we read a couple of weeks ago, only began deliverance. Jesus, though, lived, died, and was buried in a tomb as well, but his tomb was merely borrowed for three days. You see, for what we know to be true is that three days after his death, Jesus was resurrected unto life, achieving the final deliverance from Satan, sin, death, and hell that every sinner absolutely needs. And the resurrection of the greater Savior that Samson points forward to, the resurrection stands as the period to the end of God, the Lord God's redemptive storyline. Samson could only begin, but the one greater than Samson is the period at the end of the sentence saying there is no more other greater Savior that we need because we not only need a Savior who will die in order to deliver his people, we need a Savior who can resurrect from the grave showing he has defeated Satan, defeated sin, defeated death, and defeated hell, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one greater than Samson. And so as we wrap up our study of Samson, the Savior who died so that others might be delivered, it begs you and it begs me to wrestle with the question, have I been delivered from my sin by the one greater than Samson, the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not trying to make this simplistic, 
Because the gospel is the weightiest, weightiest thing that you could ever possibly imagine. But I am going to make this simple. You're either here this morning and you can say, the one greater than Samson, the Lord Jesus Christ, has delivered me because I am banking on his death and his resurrection as my only hope of salvation. And nothing else. Or you're here this morning saying, that is not true of me. Whether in pride and in arrogance, you're just playing around with sin. Whether in pride or in arrogance, you're playing around with the Christian life. Whether in pride and arrogance, you're playing around with the church. Whether you're playing around with religion. Whether you're playing around with spirituality or whatever it might be. You have all those things in your core. But one thing you do not have, and that is this. You cannot say the one greater than Samson has delivered me from the just penalty for my sin cannot say that is true of me what you need to know is that today could be the day of your deliverance today could be the day of your deliverance today could be the day where you respond as we sing and as some people come and take of the Lord's Supper you can just sit quietly in your seat as people are moving around and you can pray a prayer like this Jesus, the great and final and only Savior. I have not been delivered by you. I have sought deliverance from everything else in the world, but I have not sought deliverance from you. Please deliver me from my sin that I justly deserve. Amen. And if we take 1 John chapter 5 at his word, Again, as I argue a lot after the end of the service, that is a prayer that aligns with the will of God because Jesus in Luke 19.10, again, I've told you this before, Jesus himself tells us he came to seek and save the lost. And so when you pray along those lines, not only will Jesus hear, but he will delight to answer that prayer. And today could be the day of your deliverance. Today could be the day of your salvation. The question is, are you going to stop trusting in everything else to be your deliverer? Or are you going to cast those aside, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and run after the one who died in order to deliver your soul? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for being the one greater than Samson. We love you for being the great deliverer. The one perfectly obedient. Samson found himself in hot water because, in this situation because of his disobedience. But Jesus, you didn't find yourself on the cross because of any disobedience. You found yourself on the cross because of your perfect obedience to the holy, righteous, sovereign, good will of God. And today we're either standing here saying, Jesus has delivered me, praise be to God, or Jesus has not delivered me. And I am running to him. God, open our eyes to respond appropriately to where we're at. Holy Spirit, would you stay the gospel seed-stealing wishes of Satan, the enemy? And would you help us to respond appropriately to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this moment? It's in your powerful, resurrected name we pray, King Jesus. Amen.